Uh, well, we're at the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. We've been dealing with him, according to some, for too long. Uh, it's been 15 weeks to get through that book. But, you know, you don't have another book in the Bible that shows this man of action the same way that Mark does. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Jeff gave us a marvelous message. If you weren't here, you should go back and watch that. Listen to what he has to say about the responsibility of the church, of us, we who are the ones who should be active and involved in life, and yet sometimes, like the disciples, we're asleep when we're needed the most. And that's where we left Jesus. He had just encountered that event in his own life that was a struggling match between the flesh and the spirit, and he decided, <clears throat> I can do this. It will be the will of my Father. And so whatever you will, Father, is what I'm going to accomplish. And he rises, and he comes out into the garden, and that's when it begins, and that's where we start. He's betrayed by a kiss, captured in this famous artwork. You can see the expression on his face. The light is shining down on him to show the disappointment that this is the beginning of the end, which is the beginning. This is the moment in time where Judas literally passes a death sentence on Jesus by kissing him on the cheek. And Jesus comments about that. You would betray me with a kiss? It's just the opposite of what it should have been. But Jesus receives this, and then for the rest of this night, he is taken through the mock court system. And four more times... The death sentence is placed upon him. He goes to Caiaphas, he goes to Annas, he goes to Herod, and he ends up with Pilate, who is the Roman governor. And Pilate's the one who's very concerned about what he's heard with reference to Jesus because he's heard that this guy is called the king of the Jews, and if that's the case, then he's going to take over Jerusalem and he's going to try to take over Rome, and, and I, Pilate, have to protect the Roman Empire. That's what this is all about. And so they come together and we pick up this particular event in the life of Christ in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin made their plan, so they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, are you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Another translation says, but Jesus remained silent, and Pilate was amazed. That was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. 
What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. louder Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. There are three words in that context there, the ones that I told you were from a different translation, that are the key to what we want to learn today. Jesus remained silent. So what importance is the silence of Christ in that event to us, to our lives? We understand that Jesus spent his life, the the three years of public ministry, but also those 30 years prior to that in his private life, he spent it actively obeying the word of God, doing everything that God called him to do. Many times we run across in scripture where he is saying, you know, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Asking the Father that I could do this now. I have lost none of them other than the one that you gave me. So he's constantly in contact with the Father. And so we're seeing, as Mark has covered for us in 14 chapters, actions on the part of Jesus that show that he is actively doing what God requires. That's hard, isn't it? It's hard for us to do everything that God requires. There are times when we fail to do what he requires. There are some times that we do what he forbids. Well, where does all this come from, and of what importance is this silence to us? We have to go back all the way to the beginning. Not the beginning of Mark, but the beginning in Genesis. For in Genesis, God created the whole world for you and for me. He created it for us. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the animals. Everything was for us. He created Adam out of the dust, created the woman from Adam, brought them together and said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. So he built all of this for us to be able to rule over it and to enjoy him and it forever in his presence. That was the concept. That's what God said to Adam. That's what Adam told the woman after she was brought to him. And so here they are in the garden, and everything seems to be going well until something happens. And that is when Satan, who had been kicked out of heaven, sees what's going on, he is furious because he cannot stand the fact that creatures have been made in the image of God and he was not. He wants to be God. He wants to be the one who's ruling over. So he's going to go in and turn everything upside down. There was God and man and woman and the creation. Satan comes in and flips it over. Satan comes into the creation, goes to the woman who goes to the man to unseat God. He's always doing that. He's always taking truth and turning it upside down and trying to convince us that this is really true. So he comes into the garden. He heard when God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of all of the trees in the garden except one. The tree that is in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat from that because the day you do, you will die. Satan heard that. Now Satan comes to the woman. He said, did God really say that you can't eat of all the trees in the garden? No, that's not what God said, even though there's truth in the statement. 
You see, Satan's always going to take truth and twist it. And that's what he does right there. And the woman responds. Now, her response is active disobedience. Why do I say that? You know what she should have done? She should have gone, ah, the snake's talking. Adam, come here. You have a problem. Shut that snake up. That's what she should have done. Or at least she should have said, excuse me just a minute, God, come here. This thing is talking. But what does she do? She engages it in conversation. She starts talking to Satan. She said, no, God said we could eat of all the trees except for one, and that we couldn't even touch. No, he didn't. So immediately, you're being actively disobedient. You are doing something that you shouldn't have done. You shouldn't have talked to the snake. Now you shouldn't twist the word of God. And then she's so tempted that she goes over to that tree and takes whatever the fruit was, pulls it off, tastes it, and says, this is good. Now, sin has found its home. Her active disobedience becomes tremendous relationship of sin. Well, what about Adam? We don't get off easily, guys. It's not that Adam was over working with the pigs or doing something different. He was right there with her. How do we know that? When anyone is speaking or writing to a group of Jews and it's all women, then it is written in the feminine gender. If one man is present among all of the women, then he must speak or write in the masculine. This conversation between Satan and the woman is written in the masculine because Adam's there. He heard everything. He did nothing. His sin is being passive. His sin is refusing to do what God requires. Her sin was doing what God forbids. Look at the difference between passive sin is failing to do what God has commanded. Active sin is when you do that which he has forbidden. That's what Adam and Eve did. They messed everything up for you and for me. Because we inherit that the moment we're conceived, we have within us this nature of sin that is driven to do what God forbids and driven not to do what he commands. That's who we are until Christ enters our lives and changes us. So we accept who we are and we say, okay, so that was active and passive obedience and disobedience there that went on. So what? What does this have to do with the gospel of Mark? What does it have to do with Jesus? And he remains silent. Because Jesus is the second Adam. Paul refers to him as that in Romans, where he came to do what Adam couldn't do and to undo what Adam did. What did Adam do? He brought sin into the world. Jesus takes sin out of the world. He failed to do what God commanded. Jesus did everything that God commanded. He failed by not obeying and doing things God forbid. Jesus never did anything. He was without sin, though he was tempted in all ways as us. So you see, Jesus came and he took away the active disobedience of Adam by being actively obedient for 33 years. He never did anything wrong. He was always right with his Father in heaven. But also, 
with this action before Pilate, he now fulfills the role of being passively obedient. Do you know what he could have done? Here he is standing beside Pilate, and Pilate asks the crowd, what do you want me to do with him? They say, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus could have just gone, and they're all gone. Because he's a creator. He's the king of kings, not just the king of the Jews. He is the all-powerful one, and he's standing there as a man, the God-man, in the presence of all of these people. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have done all manner of things. What did he do? He remained silent. Why? Because he knew what he was called to do and not to do. Don't you know that as he's standing beside Pilate, he's picturing in his own mind, in just a moment, Pilate will turn me over and they will flog me and they will beat me and they will punch me in the face. I will not be recognizable. They will make a crown out of thorns and jam it onto my skull, not just place it there, but force it down. They will force me to carry that cross as far as I can, then someone else will help me. But then they will nail me to that cross. Jesus knew all of that was coming. But he didn't do anything about it. He just relaxed and let be what was to be. His passive obedience becomes the final event in his life, the final action that we needed to save us from our sins. For you see... I know the times that I've been actively disobedient. Don't ever tell me you fall into sin. You fall in ditches. You don't fall in sin. You choose to sin. And so when I have chosen to sin, I know. I'm not surprised that I sinned. I know I sinned because I made the choice to sin. So why should I be surprised at it? But I also know when I have failed to do what he commands... And I think, wow, is it just as important that I don't do what he forbids as it is that I do what he commands? Yes, they are equally important. Adam and Eve were equally guilty in their sin. Jesus wipes that out and says, you have the opportunity now to obey me. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to help us achieve that. So Pilate has a decision to make. Pilate is standing here saying, Okay, what am I going to do with this guy? I don't want him to rule Rome. I'll lose my job. Romans, they'll come and they'll kill me. He's going to rule Jerusalem. I'll just give him back to the Jews. What do you want? And they said this. This is what they said, and this is what every person who does not accept Jesus Christ is saying. Let his blood be upon us. You don't want the blood of God on you. Not when it doesn't have to be. That blood was spilled to remove your sin, to help you become actively obedient and passively obedient. So here's Pilate standing there next to the king of kings, turning him over with that final sentence of death. That's it. And Jesus, here's what's being said. And we pick up in this crucifixion, 15, beginning of verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. They forced him to carry the cross. 
They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, and it was written in Latin as well as in Greek and in Hebrew. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross, save yourself. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with the last loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up to him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the great question of life that, that we have to deal with. We know this story. This is not new information to us. But it's the question that Pilate asked the crowd in verse 12 when he says, what will you do with Jesus, the king of the Jews? See, that's the question that you have to answer sometime in your life. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with Jesus? The day is coming, Scripture tells us, that every knee will bow, every tongue confess, so what we're saying is every person from every walk of life, from every religious perspective, from every view you could possibly have 
will all at the same time bow down before him, Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, and they will acknowledge that that's who he is. I'm so thankful that by his grace and his mercy, I've already done that. And it was against my character to do it. Were it not for his grace, how would I have ever done it? Now come starting September 8th and walk through just grace with us. And you'll learn more and more about this gracious God that we serve. For without him, I'd still be in my sin. I knew there was a Jesus. I knew there was a God. My mother taught me that. But I never saw him as a king. I never had any need for him to be in my life. He was simply a historical figure. My mother loved him. My grandmother loved him. Good for them. I don't need him. Until that day came when he opened my ears to hear and opened my heart to receive. And I recognized not only do I need him, but I don't deserve him. Why in the world would he come after me? I could say of myself as Paul did, I am the chief of sinners because I know the choices I had made in life up to that time. And yet by his grace, I was saved. Now that grace exhibited itself as Jesus hung on that cross. It normally would take up to two days for someone to die on a cross. He died in six hours. How did he die so fast? Because he picked the moment. Everything Jesus did was to fulfill the scriptures. That's why it's so amazing that over the periods of years that scripture was written, by the numbers of people it was written, by the different languages it was written, that we have all this consistency, that Jesus is constantly fulfilling what Scripture said it would. And here he is hanging on a cross, and I can hear in his mind that ticking clock, that countdown. And he's going, okay, I need to stop this at 3 o'clock. It needs to happen right at 3 p.m. You know, 2.59, 59. At 3 o'clock he goes, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he's gone. Three o'clock. Why? Why was three o'clock so important? Because this was preparation day. This was a day that the priests would be in the holy place. Here's the outer court. Here's that holy place where the priest would come and the lampstand was there and the showbread was there and all these items were there that he was responsible for preparing himself because on the other side of this curtain was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where those cherubim were on either side of that Ark. It was the mercy seat of God. It's where God would show himself in his presence. And once a year at the Day of Atonement, they would, they would enter there and they would make an offering hoping that God would accept it. And so here they are in preparation and that priest that had been chosen by the drawing of lots is in there, and, and he's thinking, okay, I hope this goes well today because I don't want to die, and, and my family needs me, and so I'm going to turn now to this, uh, this curtain, and I'm, I'm going to get ready to go into this Holy of Holies. Let's see. It is 2.59.59. It's 3 o'clock, and then all of a sudden, this, this entire curtain just tears in two. 
And you think, okay, I can see a curtain tearing in two. No, you can't. This one's 60 feet by 30 feet, and it's four inches thick. And it's woven by strands of, of cord that are fabric, and there's 72 cords, and it takes 24 strands to make up one cord. I mean, this thing is so thick and so entwined together. It took 300 priests to take it down to be able to clean it. And yet here, this guy is standing, and there it goes. And I'm sure he passed out, just out of fear, because you can't stand in the presence of God. No one who is sinful can stand in his presence. You know, Moses came the closest to seeing God, and he only saw the hind quarter. Jesus had that planned. Why? Because of the statement it makes. My active obedience... My passive obedience, my willingness to die on the cross is to take all of your sin, all of your sin, not some of it, all of it. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what you have planned that's wrong. He's taken all of it and he's absorbed it into himself while on the cross. And then he suffers that separation from the Father while on the cross. He pays the penalty of sin. He pays for the wrath of God that's come upon him. That's why he cries out, why have you forsaken me? He feels that which you and I deserve. He feels that separation from God that by nature we have no right to. That curtain separates and the statement it makes is this. I am now available. You can come into the presence of God whenever you want through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So personally, when I find myself wanting to do something I know I shouldn't do, and, and you know how you go through that? You rationalize every possible thing you can. You even convince yourself, well, he's already forgiven me, so I can go ahead and do it. No, don't do that. And the Holy Spirit will speak to me and he'll say, why don't you knock on Jesus' door? He's available. And I'll go, hey, Jesus, I'm thinking about doing, oh, you don't want, okay, I won't do it. It's real easy. And just... Just the same if it's something that I should do and I'm hesitant to do it. You know, I hear it again. Just knock on the door, knock on the door. Well, God, I really don't. Okay, I'll do it. You know, you keep these short accounts with God because he's opened himself to us. The God of the universe has said, you know, come, come on. Come to the altar. Come to me. Come and, and be everything I want you to be. Wow. Some people think Jesus is still dead. But the disciples found out differently. Mary found out differently. Let's read what happens in chapter 16, just the first few verses. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought, brought spices that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? 
But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The tomb was empty. Not because somebody moved the stone so he could get out. But the stone was not there for him. Because in that spiritual dimension, the things that he made cannot contain him. And so he moves through. The earthquake comes and rolls the stone away to show that the tomb is empty. One gospel says one angel, the other says two. Sitting in there, like that mercy seat on either side of the place where Jesus' body had been laid. But Jesus isn't there. He's alive. He's alive forevermore. And everybody's going to acknowledge that. So as we've come to this conclusion, to the end of the book, the end of Mark, we realize that's what Mark was pushing us toward from the very beginning. Look at all of the actions. Look at all the healings. Look at all the, the times that he spoke to the leper and he spoke to the deaf. And he, Look at all those things that he did. Why did he do it? To show you who he is. And look how then he passively accepted the punishment of God without complaining at all about it, but he took it upon himself that you and I would have life everlasting. If you're a follower of Christ, this is just a refresher. Mark has helped you revisit the person you know as Jesus, the man of action. If you're not a follower of Christ, then... Mark has led you to a point in life where you need to become one. You need to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You need to stand with him knowing that you have eternal life. See, that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. When we come together, we're not simply doing a memorial. We're not celebrating a death. What we celebrate with communion is a life. That you and I have life because he gave his body, because he shed his blood. That's how we have our life. He is the, the final action hero. He is the one who did it all that you and I might receive from him freely what he's offered. So I urge you this morning, as we come to the, the end of Mark as we come to the end of a series, that hopefully we've come to the beginning of something new in your life, that you will rededicate your life, that you will rethink who you are in Christ. And if you're not in him, that today will be your day, that you would remember August 25th, this is the day that I came to Jesus. This is my spiritual birthday. And if all of you will pray and prepare yourselves to commune with him, we're going to serve the elements now, and we're going to remember the body that he gave for us. We're going to remember the blood he shed, but we're going to rejoice that death was arrested when Christ rose. Let's pray together as the servers come forward. Lord Jesus, thank you for all you have done for us. Thank you for who you are in our lives. We praise you, Lord. We now come 
to the altar. We come to your presence. We come to worship you in this act of communion, that we might be drawn closer into your presence through your Holy Spirit. So speak to us. Speak into our hearts. And Lord, speak to those who need you today, that they will receive you as Lord and Savior. For these things we pray in your name. Amen.